Have you ever wondered if China had socialism before Mao? Or if Rome could have gone back to being a republic? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast. Weaving a tapestry of world history from 1AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting TGNReview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. Brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Who have you been doing? You know, Patrick, Mm. it's the middle of August, and it has Mm. been blistering here in the Northeast, but not today. Today is in the low 70s, it's beautiful out, and you and I are inside recording. Yeah, well, I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum. It's awful outside here. We've had a really, really rubbish uh, weather. We've had really rubbish weather in August this uh, year. It's been really sad, because last summer was beautiful here in England, and I spent the majority of it with a cast on my arm, so I couldn't really fully enjoy it. So yeah, and the weather is awful now, so I'm happy to be inside. Well, that makes one of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in any case, there's very few things that I enjoy more mm-hmm. than recording AD history, and specifically what we have in line for today. Yeah. Because Patrick, you are going to go into a place with Wong Mong that I think has a very strong possibility to blow a lot of people's minds. It certainly did for us. Yeah, this this absolutely uh, blew my mind. And what's lucky about this is it sort of per- more or less perfectly fits with the structure of our podcast. So uh, 1 to 10 AD, it was Wang's, reign, uh, Wang's uh, rise to power, whereas uh, 11 to 20 AD, it more or less will end. I mean, it actually ends in 23 AD, but we'll go over just a little bit for this one because it wouldn't make sense to end at 20 AD. It makes more sense to end it at 23 AD. So yeah, so um, if you haven't listened to the first episode, I personally would really recommend going back and listening to it. My intention for this podcast is for it to be like one sort of continuous thing you listen from the beginning, but feel free to just dip in from now. I'm going to fill you guys in uh, briefly on what we talked about in the last episode. Well, what I talked about anyway. You know, Patrick, right before we begin, I think this is the right time to finally introduce the highly anticipated and entirely necessary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. Take it away. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it has been researched, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view and research history today is not necessarily how it was treated 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, and perhaps most importantly, history and the past is like a different country. Man, is that song a classic. It really just, it never gets old. Well, anyway, on with the show. So in the last episode, we talked about Wang Meng's uh, rise to power how he became the emperor of China, in turn ending the Han dynasty and starting his own dynasty. So that's where we were then. Now, today, we're going to be looking at what he did as his time as emperor. And this can sort of be broken into uh, two sections here. The stuff he did as emperor and how his empire ended. So uh, we're going to begin with the stuff he did as emperor. And that can be broken into two uh, key categories his land reforms, and his money reforms. So what he did for land is really interesting, and I was staggered reading this. And Paul, you told me too, you were quite amazed when I showed you my show notes. It really blew my mind. Mm -hmm. 
So it was the last thing I ever expected to see. Same, same. So what he did with land in China, he nationalized his empire's lands. And you may be familiar with nationalization. You may not be. That's fine if you're not. Nationalization is the uh, is the government owning things in its most basic way. If something's nationalized, it means it uh, belongs to and is taken care of by the government. So things like uh, travel can be nationalized. Things like uh, gas or electricity can be nationalized, stuff like that. Wang nationalized his empire's land. And what he did with it was he distributed it equally to all his subjects. So, and this, how he did this was by confiscating estates for all of those who owned more than 100 acres and distributed it to those who actually farmed it. So this led to about each family owning about five acres of land each. Every family in China owned five acres, which I wouldn't say no to. I wouldn't say no to five acres of land. And how they paid tax on this wasn't through uh, money on the whole. What I read, they paid tax on this by giving 10% of all their grown food to the government. And there's actually a really good quote I uh, found said by Wang Meng about his views on land. And he said, the strong possess land by the thousands, while the weak have nowhere to place a needle, which is a really, really good quote. And also he cut land taxes from 50% just down to 10%. Now, Paul, when I read those to you, uh, what word came to mind? The one word that only could come to mind, which is what might best be called proto-socialism? Yes, yeah, and that's why we were so blown away by it we'll talk about this more in a bit but we have yeah you can say it perfectly a proto-socialism even like somewhat communist and that's just bonkers to me that so far back in time we had this happening in china of all countries a country with quite rich history with socialism and communism but that's a bit further down the line I should say we have quite a few centuries to go. Mm -hmm. Just just a few centuries. Yeah. But like I said, it wasn't only land reforms he took part in. He also reformed uh, China's money quite a lot. And one of the ways he did this was he replaced China's gold coins with bronze coins of just nominal value. Now, money is a really weird uh, thing. We Like a £5 note or a $5 bill for yourself, Paul, that's not actually worth £5 or five dollars no there's no it's a floating currency we don't back it up with uh, gold or, or silver anymore that's a it's an old thing yeah it used to be obviously but now it isn't and in this time china's uh, currency was based on actual gold so here wang man is just bronze coins and it's thought he did this to kind of even the playing fields for the rich and the poor because with this just nominal value this would put all the gold uh these wealthy people had it wouldn't mean as much because they had to use these bronze coins of value and it helped the poor who were in debt because it meant they could get this money more easily so it just really evened the playing fields with all of this but it wasn't all that good well no it was okay but something else he did which doesn't seem that socialist at first and makes him sound somewhat like a fire-breathing dragon he hoarded all of uh, china's gold like i said like schmaug or something and stored it in his personal treasury and this had huge uh, ramifications for not only China, but the wider world. I even read that this had an effect all the way in Rome with Augustus, who we will be talking about a little bit later on. We'll be hearing a lot about him. Just like we mentioned in episode one, one of the big, one of the big benefits of Roman control over first century Palestine, of course, was controlling the eastern Mediterranean and having that route into Egypt eventually, which is going to become one of the bread baskets of the empire. 
but because of the immense economic links out to the Far East. And people don't realize just how interconnected this world was. People think you're just pushing wheelbarrows and walking long distances. Yes, that is true. But there, this is, in many sense, a very, very early adaptation of a global economy. It really is. And that's something I was quite shocked by. Um, when I researched this, I thought at this moment in time, all of our sort of stories would be unconnected. I, it's staggering that over 2,000 years ago, uh, people in Italy had connections with people in China. That, that That's crazy. It is very hard to envisage based on how we look at ancient history, but it's there. And it was incredibly important, had very serious international geopolitical consequences for what he decided to do. If the Romans are reacting to it at this point, you can feel the impact. It's really an incredible thing when you think about it. It is incredible. And like I said, the Romans did react to this. They, pun intended, but gold coins became like gold dust to them. So there were certain things Augustus banned purchasing so they wouldn't lose any of the gold coins they had because they just weren't enough to go around because Wang Meng, all the way over in China, had hoarded them all for himself. Well, there's, it's interesting because there's a little bit of mm. um, a little bit of a pattern here in this whole concept mm. of of hoarding uh, partic particular uh, mm. valuable metals is, of course, during the first Opium mm. War, the British were more than happy to pay silver for tea, but they were running out of silver because it wasn't going back to them, at least not in the way they needed. So the concept of hoarding a, a true commodity of wealth is is really uh, almost, it's almost predatory. Mm, it really is. It's like I have the power because I have all the valuable thing. And the weird thing with gold We've given it its value. That's why I've always found odd with gold. I mean, sure, it's not that common to find, but just because how it looks and what we can do with it has given gold value. If everyone just stopped believing in the value of gold, things wouldn't have worked out. Things would have worked out quite differently in our world, I think. Oh, yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about it. That's something that's very hard for a lot of people when they're first getting their lessons, well, on a fundamental level, about currency. It's simply as valuable as we accept it to be. Yeah. And that, yeah, like I said, that's what he did with the bronze coins I just mentioned earlier. So, and he did more things with money. It's actually four. He invented a really early form of social security payments, which once again is quite crazy to hear. And he collected taxes from the wealthy and he used those taxes from the wealthy to make loans to the poor. So he was also something of a uh, Robin Hood of his time. Well, he's definitely somebody mm. who... Mm is very ideologically motivated. He's not just mm. a cunning, pragmatic power broker. He definitely has a mission in his mind in a very specific worldview. Yeah, definitely. And something really interesting he did, um, this is something I think is really cool, he put huge taxes on slave owners. So if you owned a slave, you had to uh, pay a huge tax. And there's a couple of ideas as to why Wang Meng did this. Some thought, uh, he did this to try and stop slavery. He thought if he puts a big enough tax on uh, owning a slave, people think, oh, it's not even worth owning a slave now. Or was it just another attempt for him to make more money? We don't really know. Maybe it was both. Maybe it was both, yeah, which is nice if it was both. You know, that's really interesting, though, pretty much when you're looking back at history, people are always looking at for the definitive answer. Oh, it, it, was, it was column A. Oh, it was column B. And a lot of the times I'll stop and say to myself, why can't it be 
you know, one from column A and one from column B. Yeah. Yeah, things aren't things really aren't black and white. There, there are a variety of reasons people do things. So we know what Wang Meng did as emperor of China, but we don't seem to know why he uh, did what he did as a ruler of China. There are a few ideas floating around there, however, to reason why he led such a socialist-looking empire. And one of the really interesting ones is it's something out of his control. There have been sort of evidence that while Wang was emperor of China, the Yellow River, which goes through uh, China, uh, changed course. And because of this, this resulted in famine, drought, flooding. And yeah, so it's thought that really messed up China because we don't think about things like this now, how uh, nature can affect things. It seems so much in our modern world we aren't affected by nature like this anymore. Like if a river floods, it, it's bad, obviously, but it won't affect the country as a whole. We're such a global economy that we can depend on other uh, people's goods to come in. Or see, at this time, they couldn't do that. So this river was a life bringer, a life giver to these guys. And with it uh, changing, it meant Wang had to figure out, oh my goodness, how am I going to sort this out? So that's what that's why he gave the land away to so many people. So there were more people growing uh, fruit food for the people of China to eat. But it was a reason, which we'll talk about in a bit. It was a reason people started to get angry at Wang Meng. It's fought because of this, because there was so much famine and drought and flooding in other parts of China. That's why people started to get angry at him. So it definitely, uh, it's fought. It definitely made him a bit more defenseless, one way or another. So a lot of other historians feel he ruled this way not because he was a socialist, but because he was Confucian. And uh, Confucianism, as we talked about uh, earlier, uh, in last episode in fact, played a real big role in Chinese history and somewhat in China today, it's still very entrenched. So I actually did some digging into what exactly is Confucianism because I didn't want to just say, oh, Confucianism, but leave you at that. So luckily, I was reading a really good book called A Little History of the World, which I'm sure will be linked down below for you guys to check out, and had a perfect chapter explaining what Confucianism is. And obviously, from the name of it, it was founded by a fella called Confucius. And he wasn't a nobleman, but he was a son of a family who fell on really hard times. And in this, he got to thinking, and he believed everyone should live peacefully together. And one of the most important things about Confucianism is he thought outward appearances have a lot of stock. They're very important. The way we treat people, the way uh, like bowing to elders, he believed in very strongly, leaving doors open for others, uh, standing up when an authority uh, enters the room, all sort of stuff that you still see a lot of people doing to this day. It was um, a huge impact in Asia and the larger world. And he also urged his fellow countrymen to maintain these old habits and wanted them to stay. And like I said, they still are to this day. And fundamentally, he thought that everyone was born honest and good and remains deep within them today. I know it's quite hard to imagine that with some people, but apparently everyone has a little bit of good in them. So, and it was these sort of ideas that's for why Wang Man led how he led. And you can see it, like giving land to everyone, making sure everyone can live peacefully together. If everyone has the same amount of land, they won't be arguing, oh, I've got more land, you've got more land. So it is understandable to see why uh, people would think this. But also it's uh, for he uh, run things very Confucianously because he wanted to go back to the time of the Zhao dynasty. 
and the Zhao dynasty were a much older uh, dynasty in China, and they're thought to be very prosperous. They're like they're the Chinese group was like the good old days, if that makes sense. That this sort of legendary dynasty that ruled really amazingly and well, and they were Confucianists. So Wang Meng thought, "Hey, if I run things Confucianistly, hopefully we might be as good as the Zhao dynasty were." So that's what. Wang did as emperor that's the changes he made to China and like I said this is a, a tale of two halves Wang as emperor it's what he did and how it ended so um, we want to talk about Wang Meng's later years as ruler of China and it's believed that he sort of worked restlessly he was always working there are reports that he like spent uh, his nights just collapsed over his desk because he'd been working all day and all night and he just bleh, just collapsed like that it's even thought he went a little bit crazy towards the end of his time. One historian whose name uh, has left my mind right now really thinks he might have even spent a large amount of this time uh, high off some sort of narcotic that they had in China at the time, perhaps opium, as we mentioned earlier. And he even started to delve into the mystic side of the world. He, like, he brought magicians to his palace and wanted to see their spells. Obviously, I don't know what this actually would have entailed, if it just would have been pulling a rabbit out of the hat, like we see now, or if these people actually had actual magic, though I'm more inclined to think it was more just like magic we see today. And fundamentally, this was a very different man to the man I introduced you guys to in episode one, who was very smart and honourable, and by now the power had got to him, which... It's quite sad to look at, I guess. Uh, we talked about in the last episode how there's the two challenges of achieving power and maintaining power. And while Wang Meng could uh, achieve it, it looks like he struggled to maintain it for sure. And of course, this all comes into play at the end of his reign and, spoilers, his death. Because, as I mentioned last episode, uh, his empire dies with him. And this rule started to unrest the people in China and they wanted to revive the Han dynasty. And a lot of this is due to the mandate from heaven, which uh, we'll talk about a bit later on, Paul, I believe. And the mandate from heaven was uh, someone who was given it to rule over China from heaven, a mandate from heaven, as it explains. And it was very uh, changeable. Some people had it, some people didn't. You could get it like halfway through your life and you could lose it as well. And we'll talk about that more a bit more um, down the line. So this uh, led to peasants forming factions who wanted to overthrow him. Uh, most notably, a, a group of people called the Red Eyebrows. Why they were called the Red Eyebrows, I'm not too sure. It's a fun name. Maybe like they had red eyebrows, I guess, or like they used war paint. And these peasant uprisings sort of began and they defeated Wang's uh, huge armies. And by the 4th of October, 23 AD, like I said, we're going to be going over the uh, 20 bracket here, just because it makes sense. These rebels broke into the capital and people in the city joined them. They didn't fight back. They were like, we're on your side. We're going to try and kick Wang Mang out as well. And they were setting fire to the city and fighting Wang's men. And Wang's men tried to defend him, but just these rebels were too strong. And in one final crazed attempt... He tried to use his magical defences, which I don't think went too well, because I hate to say it, Paul, but I don't think magic exists. Well, if it exists, it's not magic, and clearly not meant for the human experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Wang took this time just waiting in his palace. I think he knew his time was up. He was defeated, and he would probably would just stayed up there watching the world burn down in front of him. 
which would really suck. Like I said, it's hard to... With Wang, you almost feel a bit of sympathy for him here. He had tried. Um, and it just looks like he wasn't cut out for power as much as he thought he was. So the rebels eventually found him in his palace and they killed him. But they didn't just kill him. Uh, the squeamish might want to just take the headphones out for a minute. They decapitated him, tore his body apart, and they kept that the soldiers and rebels kept part of his body as souvenirs. And in one final act, they cut out his tongue and ate it. And I looked into cannibalism in uh, Chinese history, and it doesn't seem to be a thing they partook in that often. So that's quite the example to see that they ate his tongue. And of course, this led to the Han Dynasty being reformed, and this ended Wang Meng's time as ruler. So that's Wang Meng's story. It's it's an interesting one. It really is. And it opens up so many questions, which, Paul, I'm sure you have some for me. Here's an interesting place to start. So naturally, you can't ignore the part of the story that just sticks out above all the rest. And that is what appears, at least in form, as some form of proto-socialism, something that happened a good, oh, I don't know, like a almost eight, you know, 1,850 years before the Communist Manifesto, something like that. Yeah. So that was one of the things I wrote down here. The Communist Manifesto was published in 1848. So this is over a thousand years before, you know, that was even a thing, which is crazy. And of course, like we said, China have quite a history with socialism and communism. And this is probably a phrase we're going to be saying quite often. And I can't, it's, it's a famous quote, and I can't remember who said it initially. But those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And it's just, you, you see it here, you see it here. You see someone trying to make China communist and it not working out well. Well, it, you know, from, from my perspective, when I'm looking at this, and while you can't deny many of the of the major similarities, I, I am very I am very careful to to put those tags on it because they're they're very much a you know a Western philosophy that came out of a very different time and place. You know, Wang Meng never saw uh, child labor in factories. Uh, you know, he never you know ever ever conceived of the idea in all likelihood of you know, commoner labor collectively bargaining. You know, these these are so many of the issues that that come around in in the in the socialist uh, socialist and communist thrust into the twentieth century. But what I find interesting, and you get begin looking into how this was affecting his people. The first thing that is very noticeable is he was going after the the high elite class every bit as he was trying to affect his subjects. You know, ones they were peasants, city dwellers, it didn't matter to him. Everybody was kind of on that level playing field. And as far as, and, and this, and he definitely, he definitely made clearly a lot of enemies from the very privileged class who are clearly lumping it right now in a way they're not ready to accept. And you and I, as we did in episode one, there's always that question about how power is accumulated, how it is exercised. And in this situation, this is where it's interesting. 
There's called the, the three P's when it comes to governing. And specifically in this way, given the nature of Chinese society at the time, they say there are three things, especially when you have complete one-man rule. It's often been said that a government doesn't fall when the common people rise up. It falls when the noble elites abandon them. And they say there are three ways in a situation that where it's one-man rule in which you can govern and manage to keep that support there. Three Ps. First is politics. Second is privilege. And the third is purge. And in this case, he certainly wasn't doing the second. Privilege was most certainly very much penalized in his dynasty. And it seems unlikely that based on the policies that he was implementing, it didn't sound like he had too many of the elites on board for how he viewed the world or his vision of Xin Dynasty China at the time. And, well, maybe you could tell me a little bit about Purge. Uh, he did it to his own son. But in, in this case, he definitely violated all three. And on top of that, the bronze coins were definitely not well received because many cases, and then the red eyebrows certainly were uh, a part of this, was it was in fact taking from wealth and then they were hurting for it. And on top of that, then you have what happened at the Yellow River. And so it's very, it's obviously very difficult to understand why exactly he did this. You can't deny how much it sticks out, but he was, he was also very ideologically driven in a way that he most certainly wasn't in his rise to power. And I find that very, very fascinating. Hmm. And so do I. Like you're saying, his ideology it wasn't present in his rise to power. Like when I researched how he became uh, emperor, there was no talk about this sort of like proto-socialism as, as we've dubbed it. It just seemed to all come out the moment he took over. And it is, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating. Yes, it definitely is. But there's the other part of this equation as well. The equation that they can't control. And that, of course, is the Yellow River. Now, there's probably quite a few people that are listening to this podcast that may not exactly be up on their geography of China. And that's okay. I believe it is the sixth longest river in the world. Yeah, I know it is, it is definitely one of vital importance in China. So I imagine it's pretty big. And it essentially flows from what we would call today uh, Inner Mongolia and then out into the Yellow Sea. But something that's really important for our listeners to realize is this was not some freak occasion. Within recorded history, the Yellow River has made a transformation mm. from its traditional positioning as much as 1,500 times. I'll give you a wonderful example of this because the Yellow, the Re Yellow River has dictated mm. so much of the history of China that you actually have to look into it to see what it's all about because obviously Wang most certainly was hurt by this. And on top of that, throughout Chinese history, Chinese leaders mm. have weaponized the Yellow River a great deal. But we're going to get to that in a moment. See, th this is really cool. So in 1128, the Song armies from the Song dynasties breached, uh, they breached uh, southern dikes on the Yellow River to weaponize it because they were trying to they were in combat and they were making a advance in the other direction, which is 
a very nice way of saying they're on the back foot. And in this case, the Yellow River diverted again because of this, causing it to uh, divert south of Shandong. All right. That if you look at the map, Shandong province, so where it was going originally was in the northernmost portion of Shandong. It actually diverted completely south of that province. It's a distance. It is a distance of roughly 279 miles. And if the listeners want to get a good way to visualize that, imagine the Mississippi River decided to go up and have a wild weekend in Kansas City. (laughs) That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That's the level of disaster. It's a level of disaster that would even still be difficult for us today to handle. Oh, good, yeah. And this sort of thing happens a great deal. Obviously, some of it's natural. Some of it is man-made. But the most infamous incident uh, weaponizing the Yellow River was during the Japanese invasion of China after the Marco Polo Bridge incident. And Chiang Kai-shek chose to destroy some of the dikes on the Yellow River to stop the Japanese advance. And in doing so, an estimated 800,000 people died and more than 4 million were displaced. Now think about that. That's the kind of thing that they deal with when it comes to the Yellow River, in addition to the fact that it almost always floods naturally because of all the silt that builds up. It makes it a very unpredictable piece of territory, despite its importance. And that's the thing with this. It was so unpredictable. And it's not even Wang Meng's fault. Anyone could have been an emperor at this time, and they would have had to deal with this. He was just fighting something so out of his control. There was nothing he could have done about the change in the Yellow River. And that's, I I guess that would be like, an, you could look, if that didn't happen, Wang might have been more successful. He might be more remembered in history. It's just one of those things we don't know. No, it's absolutely impossible to know. But I'm, you know, looking at Mang mm. Wang, and we're beginning to learn more about the man he was on the whole. It is, in many ways, something of a cautionary tale because he decided to basically uproot an early feudal society and redistribute assets across the board. And of course, he lost the kind of support that he needed. Hmm. And in addition to that, he also had to deal with the absolute disaster naturally that occurred, and which is kind of interesting because water is still Hmm. a very, very big problem in modern China. But if we're going to compare him to a socialist, of course, the other Hmm. great and great, not in a moral context, very, very much in a stature context. I have no love or sympathy for Mao whatsoever. Well, the thing that here's the irony about it. So there's a school of thought that believes one of the reasons why he wanted to enact these reforms was be had was to do with, with certain beliefs in Confucianism. Yes. 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 That's that, that. That's what it's thought to be that he wanted to follow Confucianism very strictly in his time as emperor. Yeah. You, you compare him to Mao Zedong. And the historic irony, of course, is that Wang Meng, perhaps, enacted these reforms due to a very strong belief in Confucianism. Mm-hmm. And then his, you know, uh, let's, let's just say uh, ideological ancestor then comes back almost 2,000 years later, launches the Cultural Revolution, which one of its hallmarks was, of course, targeting Confucianism. How interesting. 
Yes, it's like what Wang followed so devoutly. As much as we can compare Wang and Mao, Mao had the complete opposite opinion of Confucianism. So it's like it's like an alternate take on Wang if we had those socialist ideas, but without the Confucianism, we get Mao. Unless I am mistaken, putting aside any sort of mm. death or injury that occurred due to the diversion of the Yellow River, which was out of their control, I could be wrong, but I get the feeling that under Wang Meng, the body count wasn't nearly as high. No, no, not compared to Mao's. I don't think many body counts are um, as high as uh, as high as Mao's, especially compared to his body count. Yes, and it's also interesting how quickly this fell apart on him, and how he, when he became emperor, he didn't keep that part of him that was, you know, keenly savvy mm. in regards to politics, playing the political mm. game in order to further his vision. It's almost like he abandoned it. It really is, isn't it? Like, I, I was quite shocked at this myself, because before becoming an emperor, we had this really cunning guy, this guy who really manipulated, worked his way in the background. And maybe maybe he just sort of realised, I'm here now, I can do whatever I want. And he didn't really, he just abandoned that part of his mind, that, that part of his being, just went, I'm here now, let's do what I want to do. Because it is so odd at the turn of how he acts before Emperor and how he acts as Emperor. And like I said, in his later years, he went bonkers. <laughs> he went absolutely insane. He was like, it's believed he was taking drugs all the time. He, he was obsessed with like magic. It's it's a whole different person. Yeah, it, it certainly appears mm. that way. And the other thing that was really incredible about this is in terms of when he fell in the military aspect of it, my research is correct. In terms of mm. men, fighting fighting men, he actually had a three-to-one advantage yes. over the forces that ultimately did he him in. He had a huge army, and they still, couldn't, they still couldn't defeat the rebels. No, and then the rebels ultimately mm. ended up sieging the capital, and they ended mm. up going over the wall. And, of course, we know the yes. debauchery that happened yes. next. Oof. Mm. Well, Oof. that's... Well, luckily, luck, luckily, this very wholesome podcast is rated E for explicit. Yes, yes, of course. That's why we have it there. But just to give the audience an idea of what we're trying to do here in AD History. So the other day I was in a bookshop called Waterstones, which we have, they're like uh, England's Barnes & Noble. And I opened, uh, I was in the world history section because I thought, oh, try and get a book for research. And there was a book about Chinese history. I thought, ah, oh, that could come in handy. And yeah. I opened it up. I knew where I wanted to go. And I saw, I went to the part about the Han Dynasty and within the chapter of the Han Dynasty was just a couple uh, paragraphs about Wang Meng and his time as emperor. So I just I just thought that was really interesting compared to like the depth we're going into here compared to like a book about Chinese history and he had a couple paragraphs on him. And I hope the audience appreciate that and what we're trying to do with this podcast. I just thought that was a really neat explanation of how finally we want to go over history here. No, I completely concur. Mm. And one of the, when it comes to history, this is true across the world. Most people are interested <laughs> in the history of their own people, their own country, their own sweep of civilization. And certainly here in America, there are very few people that would be able to identify who Wang Mong was or have much to say about 
the Han Dynasty or first century China. I was one of them before I researched this. Yeah. And as far as I can tell at this point, Patrick, it seems <laughs> like we may be the most people, we may be the people who have talked about this fellow most that's generally available at the moment. We are like Wang Meng's ambassadors. <laughs> yes, for better or worse. But I have every intention of keeping all of my appendages and to be devoured by no one. Yes, my tongue is staying in my mouth and no one else's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, goodness, goodness. Well, I'll tell you what, Patrick, this has been a very, very interesting and worthwhile exploration of a part of Chinese history and world history that is just not available in any significant or digestible way. But if it comes to power politics and dynasty and power and struggle, you're going to get a lot more of that when we come back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at AD History PC and the hashtag AD History. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you very much, Anna. Now, Paul, we're going to go back to ancient Rome, and you're going to tell us about how another emperor met his demise. So, Patrick, this is a very, very complicated story, as well as a familiar and instructive story. A story we've heard in other places, in history and in fiction. But I think it's best to set the scene. For the first time, I'm bringing us to Rome proper, and we are at 14 AD on the deathbed of Augustus. And it's said that his last words were, and there are several interpretations from Latin, but I think this is the best one. In this dark comedy we call life, have I played my role well? This is a very interesting and controversial question, although not entirely unexpected. And in the case of Augustus, when you consider when he came into public life at roughly 18 or 19 years old, between what would be two major Roman civil wars in a very, very short period, and how he managed to accumulate power and bring consolidation, peace, and stability to the empire, despite the fact the way he did that not corresponding with the best values and customs of Roman republicanism and democracy, you have to imagine that the answer is yes, he did. Inasmuch as this episode is about Tiberius, you cannot understand Tiberius or any Roman emperor that follows Augustus without understanding how Augustus came to power, how he ruled, how he accumulated power, and ultimately how he shaped the role for every single emperor in perpetuity for the Roman Empire unto the end of Rome itself. But before we go any further, Patrick, it's something of a misnomer to call Octavian, later Augustus, emperor. That's kind of putting a modern conception on the role that didn't exist at the time, and he didn't call himself that. In fact, no one in that role called themselves that or were referred to that in any way prior to the beginning of the 2nd century. 
In fact, they went by the, the moniker Princeps, which is translated as first citizen, you know, basically communicating the concept, disingenuous or otherwise, as a first among equals. In fact, the term emperor is a Roman military moniker, which was imperatory, which was given to a celebrated and victorious Roman general. But ultimately, that was not how they understood that position at that time. But Augustus, and now who I will refer to currently as Octavian, was the longest serving person in that princeps role and later emperor, remaining in power effectively for parts of five decades. And there was a very good reason for this, in fact, for even as a young man at 18 or 19 years old thrown into the charnel house of high Roman politics, he understood politics, and especially the politics of the time, far better than most anybody else could, uh, certainly better than his contemporary allies and rivals, because in truth, he was a master of politics, and later we'll see very clearly that Tiberius was anything but that. But ultimately, in far as he is concerned, who exactly was Octavian, later Augustus? Octavian was the great grandnephew of the Gaius Julius Caesar. Yes, that Julius Caesar. The guy who's on the front of your podcast holding a smartphone right now. No, 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 no. That's the Roman emperor no one's ever heard of, Caesar Odo. Oh, of course, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's one for you Star Trek Deep Space Nine fans in the audience. Seriously, we'll put a image comparison later on in social media and you'll see what we mean. It's the same Julius Caesar that notably crosses the Rubicon, the same Julius Caesar that created the first so-called first triumvirate, which was basically a gentleman's agreement with no legality and it was a coup. And he's the same Julius Caesar that was assassinated on the Ides of March. He's the one who was stabbed by conspirator senators, including the famed Brutus, thank you very much, William Shakespeare. And it was also nearly bungled. In fact, it was a total mess. These senators were looking to return senatorial rule to the Republic because after winning the first Roman Civil War, Julius Caesar ended up basically crowning himself dictator for life, and they wanted to get away from that, just like they wanted to get away from what was effectively Pompey as a dictator before Julius Caesar, but they had a really big problem when it came to taking out Julius Caesar. They had no idea how the Roman Republic would react to that, because in truth, Julius Caesar was actually very, very popular at the time, especially among lower classes of Romans. For no other reason, in, in many, many respects, he'd had many reforms that included redistribution of wealth, especially in terms of land and hard currency. And on top of that, Julius Caesar also had a very, very strong, indeed fanatically loyal military followings from the legions that ultimately led him to power. Of course, it wasn't enough to save him, but it certainly was there. And so now that he was dead, he had a final will and testament, the most important part of which named his successor, which was his great-nephew, Octavian. And he had definitely had other children, but none that were really particularly right for dynastic rule. In fact, he even had a son with Cleopatra VII, the same Cleopatra VII that would go on to, let's say, intimately collaborate with Mark Antony. 
In fact, Cleopatra was also in Rome during the Ides of March at one of Julius Caesar's villas, but of course, when he's assassinated, she flees for very, very obvious reasons. But when Octavian arrives on the Italian peninsula at 18 or 19 years old, and here's the news that Julius Caesar's dead and he's named his successor, the very first thing we, he does, and we talked about this last time, Patrick, is as was his right as his also adopted son, which made the succession far, far more fluid, at least in Julius Caesar's eyes, Octavian assumes the name Gaius Julius Caesar. Now, that's really fascinating, isn't it? It's incredibly politically adept because Octavian essentially recognizes the power that his adopted father, now the late Julius Caesar, still holds with a large portion of the Roman, pub uh, Roman public, in addition to the fact that he knows there most certainly is going to be animosity against those who conspired and successfully managed to stab him to death. In addition to that, Octavian gets a really, really wonderful prize, which is shortly after Julius Caesar is murdered, they actually make a decree basically stating that Julius Caesar was divine. And this is something that's going to happen a lot more later on when we're talking the Princeps role and emperors who follow, simply because it was usually a, a sign of how popular a Princeps and later emperor were when they died, but they could be given it. It could also be taken away. It's very interesting, but it's really, really helpful to Octavian because it basically makes him not just the name successor of Julius Caesar, but it also makes him the son and appointed heir to a god. And that is incredibly powerful, both politically and culturally in the empire, which most certainly accepts that as something of extreme value. So here we begin to see the very initial framework for how Octavian begins to create this princeps and later emperor role through these slow, gradual, high-wire high-power political machinations, and in a sense, he begins by creating this role. He's also changing Rome from the Republic that it was to the emperor, you know, the empire, the Roman Empire, and very much secretive one-man dynastic rule that will end up taking it to the very end of its days. But when we're talking about this, and Octavian is very much aware of this, in Roman political parlance, whether you're talking to a, an everyday Roman on the street or you're talking to a Roman politician, there is one four-letter word you can never use. Do you know what that word is? King. Yeah, king. I'm going to be talking, once you told your story, I'm definitely going to be delving into uh, the Romans and monarchy because it's, it's a fascinating little world they got themselves out of and then got themselves back into. No, no, it is absolutely incredible, and I look forward to that. But following the murder of Caesar, there was an incredible political fallout between the conspirator assassins and what would become known as the Second Triumvirate. The Second Triumvirate was a faction that consisted of Octavian, Marcus Lepidus, and once again, Mark Antony. In together vying for power, they entered a military coalition and struggle against the conspirator senators, once again, the most notable one being Brutus. Their coalition against these conspirators concludes successfully at the Battle of Philippi, which today is roughly what would be considered in modern-day Macedonia. And upon the Second Triumvirate's victory, 
the three coalition leaders split the Roman world into effectively three military dictatorships. Octavian gets Hispania and gets Gaul, which is awfully fitting given all that Julius Caesar did to conquer and tame Gaul. Marcus Lepidus, basically what gets what they call Roman Africa, which is today the northernmost coastal regions of Libya and Tunisia. It runs from Cyrenaica almost slightly past Tunis. And Mark Antony gets the east, which is a really, really big deal because it, he focuses his power in Egypt. He makes his, cap his capital Alexandria, which is where the power in Egypt had been under Ptolemaic rule and with Cleopatra VII, and it also includes a great deal of wealth. So at that point in time, it really looks like of the three of them that Mark Antony is the initial winner here, but clearly that's not the case, or certainly it will not remain as such. So to shore up all of their gains, all three of them undertake what is called the proscriptions. The prescriptions are a, uh, a very, very nasty political purge where on their extra legal authority, they basically, on their orders, get rid of any potential rivals that could the theoretically oppose them again in the future. In fact, this is how Cicero met his fate on the orders of Mark Antony. Yet as soon as this triumvirate is settled, the three begin fighting each other. It was a, never a stable or realistic arrangement, especially when you stop and think about it. And the ambitions of all three are clear to anyone who has eyes to see. In a compact explanation of complicated events, Octavian, using the military he's developed, which in fact is mostly, at least initially, um, composed of so much of Julius Caesar's fanatically loyal legions that brought him to power, in addition to the fact he also inherited a great deal of wealth from Julius Caesar. So he's able to not just satiate them with the booty of victory, but he also has extremely deep pockets as well, and they're going to get deeper, in fact. But Octavian's the first one to move on the other two, because he figures that as soon as they find it practicable and they get their first whiff of blood, they're going to turn on him. You know, how could he think otherwise, right? Octavian defeats Lepidus, and most notably, he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra at the famous sea battle at Actium, after which Antony falls on his sword when they retreat, committing suicide, and Cleopatra VII legendarily poisons herself with a snake bite. It effectively ends the Ptolemaic rule of Egypt, which had been going on since pretty much the death of Alexander the Great about 300 or so years prior to this point, a little less than that, in fact. And it formally brings Egypt into the Roman Empire. And in doing so, it accumulates so much of the wealth that was in Egypt, but was clearly being mismanaged by the Ptolemaic rulers at that point in time. And it also has an incredibly advantageous geopolitical location, especially when you consider that it's going to be one of the breadbaskets of the empire. And there are great economic links, especially by sea, for trade between Egypt and India, and of course, would be very much in a way to aggrandize and enrich the Roman Empire. That's, yeah, that, that's just to show the power of Octavian, because uh, Egypt was a huge empire, one of the longest uh, lasting empires on the history of the world, I believe. You know, like, it's like 3,000 years Egypt was an empire, and it reached a point when another empire could engulf it. It's just, it's just crazy to hear. No, no, it really is incredible. 
Egyptian civilization is a long sweep of history accomplished so much. It changes faces in many ways over millennia, and now it's underfoot and subject to the Romans. Octavian also undertakes a little side errand of his own, very much in the guise of, not guise, but very much in the flavor of the prescriptions. Listening to the advice of a, of a friend and counselor, Arius D. Demias, quote, Two Caesars are one too many, meaning he should purge the biological son, which we mentioned earlier, of Julius Caesar that he had with Cleopatra and to guarantee that there would be no other potential political challenges to Julius Caesar and his progeny and any sort of legitimacy of who should be actually succeeding him. It's one again, once again, it's one of those three P's of power that we were talking about in the last segment, purge. These victories led by Octavian and his top military general Marcus Agrippa unite the Roman Empire under a single flag, and truly, and for all intents and purposes, for the first time in quite a long time. And upon ultimate victory, Octavian and Agrippa go back to Rome. And upon their arrival, the Senate elects them both as consuls. And those for, that are not familiar with this, consuls are about the highest level of power and oversight that you can have in Roman administration. Consuls have what was known as the power of imperium, which gives consuls and those who possess that power the full effect and force of the Roman state and law by their very edict and desire, and gives them everything they really need to control the provinces, because this is very specific to the provinces um, outside of Rome and certain parts of the Italian peninsula. This is effectively when he becomes princeps, first citizen, and slowly begins accumulating all the power he desired and probably thought was entirely necessary to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, considering so much of what he wanted to do, in no undeniable way, was to consolidate the empire. Because after all this time, without that consolidation, you can't have a proper society, you can't have an economy, you can't have a proper civil society. Political mechanisms don't work, and he fully understands that. And after serving for a period of a few years, Octavian makes a great show of Republican tradition and steps down from his consul post, but essentially giving back power to the Senate itself. It was nothing less than a great show of political theater and deference to tradition. There's really no other way to look at that, but he wasn't really going anywhere. He couldn't go anywhere. The situation was just too volatile. It was his greatest wish to consolidate, as I mentioned, and keep the peace. Should he have left, it's entirely likely that you would have seen other power rivals and others with similar ambitions, whether it be generals with troops under the command, senators with deep pockets, or a combination of both, entering into what could be, then be just another vying for power, and the cycle continues. So you want to make sure that Rome doesn't go back to square one, and the military power he wielded itself made sure that matters remained stable, because even though he's technically given back power and made this great show of deference, they understand the, the whip hand he has over events almost in their entirety. But Octavian understands that neither the Senate at this point nor the Roman public will accept a bald-faced dictatorship or a monarchy or anything that looks like that. This was very much one of the big mistakes that Julius Caesar made, and Octavian goes a long way to avoid doing that himself. 
Thus, he had to sh he had to slowly change the nature of the power struggle, and in truth, rule single-handedly, but through the guise of Republican constitutionality and all of the structures that had had existed traditionally in the Roman Republic. And at this point, he also changes his name officially from Octavian to Augustus, which translates from Latin into English as revered one. And if I may intervene, uh, obviously this is just a fun side fact for me looking too much into names. Obviously, Augustus is where we get the name of August from. Just thought I'd throw it in there. <laughs> always explaining them names. I'm always explaining them names. <laughs> at this point, Octavian now Augustus, has become an independent force matching the Roman state itself. Not only does he have the aforementioned military structure, but he's just as much a financial force as well. He manages to accumulate a great deal of personal wealth, both from the inheritance that he got from his adopted stepfather Julius Caesar, as well as all of the booty that comes with conquering Egypt, which, as I mentioned earlier, is really considerable. And it changes so much, because he then also has an immense power of patronage. There was even a story, and this is a really a classic story, where Octavian proposes building a series of roads to the Senate, and the Senate declines. And basically what ends up happening is Augustus finances most of that out of his own pockets. And, you know, that's kind of a scary thing to think about if you put that in a modern context when you include the, the fact that he has so much military force at his command as well. Moreover, patronage buys him political allies, keeps his military power satiated. It was an incredible situation in all forms. So once again, in a compact explanation of complicated events, Augustus undergoes what is called both the first and second settlements with the Senate, because they want to keep him around, but they still need to keep up this guise of constitutionality with him in this princeps first citizen role. The first settlement allowed Octavian to retain his consular post powers without actually being a consul. Essentially, neither, you know, neither the Senate nor the Roman people would have him go, so for the benefit of appearance and constitutionality, the Senate made Augustus a proconsul for a period of 10 years. He retained his power of imperium, and it gave him complete control over proconsuls that are governing proconsular provinces, and this is kind of an interesting little twist. Since proconsular provinces, all of course being governed by proconsuls, are generally the more troublesome and volatile provinces of the empire, there's usually a greater military force there than you would see in other places. Hence, it puts all of that underneath the dictatorial and largely discretion of Octavian and adds that military power on top of what he already has. And the, the great constitutional compromise still trying to keep up this guise, he then gives the Senate control over Praetorian provinces, which are controlled by Praetors. And in doing that, the reason why is Praetorian provinces are far more stable, and so they have far less military due to the lack of necessity. So the Senate gets that, and it has the appearance of a constitutional compromise, but for anybody that has eyes to see at this point, it's very, very clear that Augustus has much bigger plans for the role. 
In addition to that, and this is another very interesting point, Augustus also had immediate allies who possessed the power of Tribune. Tribune was a power granted to the top member of the plebeian assembly who could call them into session. And of course, they were elected by the plebeian class. They could call them into session, and they also had a veto power as well. And having that political card, it gave Augustus far more direct legal control over the clearly larger plebeian numbers in their class and control over them legally and directly. In the second settlement, the most notable change was Augustus formally assuming the power of tribune himself. So he gets rid of the middleman. He doesn't need a proxy anymore, more or less giving him full control over the Roman state. So now Augustus is really getting to the point where he he has this princeps role. He has so much of the power he wants, but he begins considering issues that relate to succession. And there's a lot of characters who come and go, but the first person who came up, and this is more of a matter of age, is actually the son of his second wife called Tiberius. Tiberius was a, a military general. He spent about 22 years on the northern Roman provinces of Germania and has fair amount of success there, but he's a very different character than we're used to when it comes to Augustus because he's not a politician. He's very, very much a military man. And this is kind of a sad story when you get to this point because in order for this to properly work, Augustus basically commands that Tiberius divorce his first and current wife, whom he loved, and marry his daughter, Yulia. You know, and this is a very, this is a terrible situation because those two are a match made from hell. And he doesn't like her and she's really, really no better to him whatsoever. It's, it's really <laughs> terrible. God, he, he did not like his wife. And something I find interesting with this, um, when we talk about Roman history normally, it's full of such vibrant characters you think of sort of like, you know, like people who use their words, really sort of articulate, amazing people like Caesar, uh, Cicero comes to mind. He was very elegant, very charming, good talking sort of person. And with Tiberius, we have a really different kind of character here. One that I don't think pops up in Roman history all that often. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's no question about that. So the other thing that happens as well, Augustus also has two grandchildren that begin raising in profile in terms of his desire for succession when the time comes. And in the case of Tiberius, having to divorce his first wife is a big issue. There's a story, it may be apocryphal, that even a officer had to be assigned to his first wife to keep him away from Tiberius because they understand exactly how Tiberius feels and her effect on him. But he sees these two and he begins seeing them as the true successor, that even if he does end up taking power, it's going to be in a custodial role where he's basically keeping the seat warm until one or two of them have matured and are ready to enter public life in that role. However, in fact, both of them die in 2 and 480 respectively. But between the two desired grandchildren and being forced to marry a woman he loathes, he ends up going into self-imposed exile on the Isle of Rhodes. I can't even make this up. 
So when we begin looking further into Tiberius and we get to the point where we're looking at succession at 14 AD when Octavian has him on his deathbed, even though the other choices are no longer particularly in the running, and obviously he's been in self-imposed exile for a bit of time now, this is not a real problem for Augustus. The reason why is because, for the most part, he trusts Tiberius to know that the order of the day is consolidation and that he'll very, very properly follow through on that. So when Tiberius does come to Rome on this particular occasion, this is definitely a place he has no love for whatsoever. And he comes to the Senate and they approach him and ask him to fill this first citizen role based on the wishes of Augustus to succeed him. He begins doing a bad impression of Augustus. So you remember how Augustus made that show of giving back power. Tiberius then goes on to make what at least the senators thought was a very, very disingenuous and a poor attempt to decline, that he he declined too much and he declined with too much vigor. And they just, they saw right through the whole thing. And it's this first really great example of just the kind of poor politician that he was. But even though they don't really like him, and he is a very mercurial character, he's a very, very different man than they are used to. They still don't make a big fuss about it because they know what the alternative is, and I think they at least trust him in so far as that goes. But it's very, very clear that there's this personal disconnect and a mutual animosity between the Senate and Tiberius at this point. And his first real challenge in all of this is when they start when they experience a mutiny of legions in Germania. And this basically is due to the fact that a lot of Roman historians at the time will claim the reason was is because these legions didn't want Tiberius to enter his role as Princeps later emperor. But that doesn't really make any sense, especially because Tiberius was a military man. He understood the military, he understood them, and they understood him. It's much, much more likely having to do with the fact that Roman legions at that point swore personal allegiance to the Princeps, later emperor. And with Augustus dead, they don't have an allegiance to anybody. So it's a bargaining chip for them to improve their lot since they don't have that connection. And they have very, very good reason to go ahead and rebel like this to improve their lot. Because if you are a Roman soldier, you fight for years for hope of plunder and booty, but it's a very, very hard life, especially when you're talking about, in Germania, we're talking about a place that's very unstable, that doesn't want to genuflect to the Roman Empire at any point in time. And for all that that's worth, basically, you fight for years, people are killed, people are maimed, people are injured, the conditions of that situation are awful, their life effectively sucks, and they're trying to use this opportunity to make the better of it. You know, there was some diplomacy back and forth, at least a token effort to be sure. But at the end of the day, Tiberius does what Tiberius has to do, and he puts it down. But it's a very, very difficult situation to be sure, but he handled it ultimately in the only way that he could. It's it's a it's a really crazy story you just told me, Paul. I didn't really know much about Tiberius before, like reading through your notes in this. But it's it's, it's quite a sad story. He's like the Roman leader who didn't like Rome. That's like the best way I can explain it. He seems like he didn't want to be a part of that, and obviously ended up in 
power due to monarchy and how these sort of empires find heirs as opposed to being voted in. And obviously Rome wasn't always an empire. Before it was the Roman Empire, as everyone likes to call it, it was the Roman Republic. And it only became the Roman Republic because you had the Roman monarchy before that. And the Roman monarchy was uh, obliterated and became the Republic. So it's just amazing, like I said earlier, how they fell into being an empire, a monarchy-ruled empire once again. Do you not think, Paul, at any point during all of this, uh, Tiberius maybe would have wanted to dismantle this empire and go back to the times of the Republican Senate? You know, that's an interesting question because it's definitely something that the senators were thinking themselves at the time, especially because they couldn't read the man personally. They couldn't tell because, like I said, he was so mercurial, sometimes very, very cryptic. And it was pretty clear that he didn't really want the role. He really was taking it on reluctantly. This was not his great calling. He had suffered a great deal to simply get to this point to do a job that effectively he didn't want to do. But at the time, based on his orders from Augustus and that common understanding about consolidation, it's very unlikely that he would go ahead and alter the existing power structure in a way that could in any way destabilize the situation contrary to consolidation and the marching orders that Augustus gives him. In addition to the fact that he's never, he does not want to expand either, Augustus was very, very clear about that. And he basically told him to keep his rear end out of Germania, which wasn't a hard sell given all the time that he spent there. But there is the Roman historian Tacitus, who's writing at about the beginning of the second century. And he's doing a history of all of those who assume the role of princeps from the death of Augustus, so this would include Tiberius, all the way to about when he is writing it at the beginning of the second century. And Tib you know, Tacitus is wondering this himself, and he wonders why the, the senators didn't take advantage of this opportunity. And the reason they didn't take advantage of it, because as they knew the possible alternative, they were ready to run with it. They remembered the past all too well. And the fact of the matter is, Augustus did a very good job. He didn't just consolidate it, he aggrandized it. Uh, Suetonius, who was a uh, who was Augustus's personal biographer, basically said that Augustus had turned Rome from a city of brick to a city of marble. And even though Tiberius would not be much for aggrandizing Roman culture or society or, you know, holding festivals for his people, he understood the consolidation role. But in the case of Tacitus, he's looking at it from a time in which this looks like it's a possibility for him because he's going through a pair of what are considered a couple of the of the good emperors. In his case, you're looking at Antonius Pius, and who served as emperor, and then you also have Marcus Aurelius, best known for his meditations, who serves as co-emperor, who very much make a great deal of personal sacrifice to administrate and govern very, very well in a way that others in that role most certainly do not, who use it in many ways for very, very personal political and financial gain and whatever fun they can have with that. But Tacitus is totally blown away from this, and he is also very romantic. romanticizes the Roman Republic. He definitely wants that, but he's also very cynical, so you have to keep that in mind. He basically considers what the Senate did at this point in 14 AD with this transition it was essentially to him the senators putting themselves into voluntary slavery, which is kind of an odd way of putting it, but it's not entirely unfair either. However, when it comes to Tiberius, like I said, he's a very unusual fellow. Uh, we're going to learn more about him a bit more down the road. Uh, you know, Suetonius 
who was the biographer of Augustus, talked about Tiberius and um, some of his very unusual and undesirable extracurricular activities when in the next episode, he'll go and Tiberius, that is, and exile himself onto the Isle of Capri and basically keeps himself there for the rest of his reign, which is his own thing. But no, I don't think he was ever going to change the structure. And despite the amazing resource that Tacitus is, it it doesn't really reflect the reality of the time and place in which this transition was occurring. It's, it's a really interesting story, and I, I want to know how it ends. Paul, are you going to be carrying on to serve Tiberius into the next episode? Well, I can tell you this much, Patrick. For everything that's worth, we're going to keep a very close pulse on this because a couple episodes down the road, Tiberius has a very, very interesting and infamous successor who was the son of the an adopted son who is the son of the adopted son would making him Tiberius's grandson the son of Germanicus which of course is Caligula and I may just do a, a, a portion on whether was he mad was he bad was he dangerous to know was he all three or none and that should be a lot of fun I think the audience is really going to enjoy that yes oh I'm looking forward to hearing about that this is the AD history podcast Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our journey for today. Patrick, where can people find us? Uh, you can find me personally on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, you can find me on my YouTube channel, NameExplain. And for myself, you can find me on my newly minted Twitter account at the handle at History, as well as on the social media news platform Quartz by searching Paul K. DeCostanzo. Also, take a peek at my reader email submitted Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket over on TGNR. We have a link down in the description. Now over to Anna to properly send you guys home. Thank you all so much for listening and goodbye. Yes, thank you for listening. Be well. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as ADHistoryPodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube, by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. We will see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.